0: Thank you. Good morning. morning. It is so good to be together today on this beautiful, beautiful day. Come, let us enter this space of hope and community. Come, let us enter this space with our joys and our sorrows, our passion and compassion. Come, let us enter this space with our stories, the stories of our ancestors, for their strength and wisdom beats in our hearts. Come into this space present to the beloved companions who move beside us. Come into this space mindful that together we are building a future for other generations. Come into this space, and let us worship. Chalice Lighting By, Reverend Maria Vallotton. We pause this morning from the chaos of the world to reclaim the beauty within these walls that carries us through our week. Let us lift this community onto our shoulders with pride and grace-filled expectations for our lives, for the children of the world, and their children. in your service is a conscious choice that you make to knit yourselves together as a community each and every week by sharing your joys and sorrows and bearing witness to what is happening in the community. Maria Luisa or Malu, as she sometimes calls herself is the protagonist in the book The First Rule of Punk, which catalogs her struggle with her identity, how she relates to the world, and how the world relates to her based on her multiple identities. Now, Malou's dad, he's a white punk rock loving, super cool record store owner. Her mom is a fiercely amazing Mexican college professor. Whom she calls super Mexican. Malu loves Lola Beltran, The Brat, which is a Chicano punk band. Some of you might know of it, and The Ramones. Malu is a vegetarian, concert t shirt and converse sneaker wearing, punk rock loving, biracial youth trying to find her way, not just in the world, but back to her true self because the first rule of punk is be yourself. Malou describes herself as sometimes brave, sometimes scared and unsure. A half-Mexican girl who hates cilantro, struggles with Espanol, and is still learning about her culture. How would you describe yourself? Where do we come from and where are we going? Our universalist theology teaches us that we are created from original blessing. We are created in the image, the likeness of the holy, and contain within that spark of love and blessing, so it says in Genesis. When we live from this truth, we become a living sanctuary for ourselves and for all with whom we come in contact with. Now, our modern interpretation of original blessing reveals itself in our first principle, and that is the concept that each person has inherent worth and dignity. And this inherent worth, this special spark, works in us. It works on us, and it calls us to be more loving and faithful. It calls us to grow. It also helps us love others as they grow. Sometimes when we practice living into the idea that all people have inherent worth and dignity, we can keep ourselves stuck in individualistic thinking, viewing individuals as single units of worth. And we forget about the plurality of all beings. It's important to see both the individual and the plural together. Father Richard Rohr describes the divine spark in a way that makes space for both the individual and the plural. He refers back to the book of Genesis as well and uses a fidget spinner of all things to define his metaphor. And if you don't know what a fidget spinner is, that's okay, because I'm going to tell you, it is a three-pronged apparatus that the kids just love. And when you look at it and it's still, you can see all of the prongs. But when you spin it, the prongs move so quickly that you can see only one thing. And Rohr says that that is a divine expression of all of the diversity of God's holy creations. And when you see it in movement, when that diversity becomes one, just like when the blades on a fan become one. It's almost a magical moment. And it is that dynamism, Rohr says, for growth and infinite wisdom that keeps spinning within us and all creation, calling us to grow in faith, hope, and love. And what I love about Rohr's interpretation of the image and likeness of God is that it helps us to understand the importance of knowing that we are not just static representations of the holy, but dynamic, and we are always in relationship to other beings. Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Rob Eller Isaacs, calls us to do theological work within ourselves, among our congregations, and beyond our congregational walls. These three ideas can make up prongs of a holy fidget spinner. Reverend Eller Isaacs addresses the three prongs and the dynamism in a way that makes it possible for Unitarian Universalists to live intentional lives rooted in our theology, whether or not we embrace a God out there, a God in here, a higher order of thinking, a higher order of being, or something else. But before we spin, before we seek to become true sanctuaries, we must begin with our within work and aim to understand our spiritual histories, our personal histories, and our identity formation. To do work among, we explore how we relate in our congregation, in our services, in committee meetings, when we greet each other at the door. And then we look at our work beyond these congregational walls, how we do it theologically, locally, globally, as both static prongs on that metaphorical spinner and also dynamically as expressions of whatever is holy to us. And then the invitation, according to Isaacs, L.R. Isaacs, is to constantly loop back and reflect on how the way we do theology is influencing us, feeding our understanding of our divine spark and allowing new understanding to change us. When I'm reflecting on my within work, I hold to the first rule of punk, be yourself. And then I do a personal inventory. Do you know how you're really doing? How's your spirit? How have you arrived at this place in your life, in your faith journey? Do you know how your personal life has influenced how you think and experience religion and life at this place and time? In today's meditation, we delved into feeling connected to love. And growing up, I felt deeply connected to love. My sense of the holy is directly related to both sides of my incredibly loving, sometimes chaotic, family. They taught me that there would always be something or someone to hold me in life, not to make things better or go away, but to hold me as I worked through life's challenges, of which there are many. Their love created a framework within me to believe that there might be something bigger happening in this great world. Maybe not a being that made things right for me, but something, maybe larger than myself, to be with me through life's trials. Some of us find a connection later in life that teaches us these things. And while my family couldn't give me much financially, these early lessons have remained with me. My family has broken my heart. They've broken it open. They've tested me, which has also shaped my understanding of what is holy and what is sanctuary. Like, my, like Malu from the first rule of Punk, I've been deeply influenced by my struggle with identity, and maybe you have too. As a young child, I remember crying at night as I fought to figure out if I was a Romano or a Casabene which sounds kind of funny if you don't know the story, so I'll share it with you. My dad's family, the Romanos, they hail from outside of Rome and have been in this country since the early 1900s. But my mom's family, which isn't completely here in the United States, that's another story. My maternal grandfather came here from Argentina, and also on that side of the family, I have Middle Eastern, Sicilian, and African heritage. And I wondered how I fit in a world with each of these identities. As an adult, I now understand the question I was really asking is not, am I a Romano or a Casabene, but am I white or not? And a key formative moment on this journey occurred when I was seven. Most Sundays, uh, the Romanos would gather together at my Aunt Marianne's house and we'd have Sunday dinner. And there'd be about 30 or so of us there. And I mentioned a little bit of chaos before. Well, it was controlled chaos in the sanctuary of their home with kids everywhere. We would usually swim until we just about dropped in the pool or roll on the grass and chase fireflies. It was awesome. But one Sunday, a cousin of my dad's shouted to my parents about me yelling loudly to keep that kid out of the sun. She continued with a racial slur referencing my mixed racial heritage. My sense of sanctuary was violated in that moment. An aunt of mine yelled back, leave the kid alone. But her retort was insufficient in providing me support And the racial slur hurt deeply. I remember going home that night and scrubbing my skin raw. I wondered, if my family didn't love me, would I ever find a place where I belonged? A few months after that incident, I took my very first standardized test. Aren't those lovely? And while the test said it was optional to identify our race, the teacher said it was mandatory. And the choices back then, not to date myself, were white, African-American, Asian, or other. I felt frozen as I faced down those boxes. I didn't want to leave out any part of my heritage. I certainly didn't want to lie. But I also didn't feel like any of those boxes exactly fit me. So I checked other. And that act of checking other made me feel more alone than I'd ever felt in my life. When I talked to my mom later that afternoon, my eyes that were so full of tears all day finally released them. And She said I did the right thing, but she also confirmed one of my biggest fears. I was an other. And I loved both sides of my family, my love for them, my respect for my ancestors. It created a war inside of me with my fears that I was inherently wrong, a thing to be feared. And that was later confirmed when we would spend many nights waiting for my brother to come home from school, only to find that he was pulled into a police lineup because they were cracking down on Latinx gangs. And he fit a profile. I didn't think that any place would ever truly be a sanctuary for me. And when I think back on that moment and the many moments after when I was called to try to identify myself based on somebody else's boxes, I can feel the bumps on that old scar. I also think about our beloved trans and gender non-binary siblings who face forms with boxes and bathrooms that do not have choices for them either. It's hard to know your place in the world when the world labels you as other, or doesn't even try to label you, which can leave you feeling like you don't even exist. Have you had an experience like this, where you felt excluded from the world based on key parts of your identity? Maybe it's because you didn't have the right connections. You weren't from the right school. Maybe you were too blue collar, too white collar, too attractive, not attractive enough, the wrong gender, didn't have the right religion. Maybe it was your weight, who you loved, your ability, chronic or physical or mental illness that caused you to be excluded. Maybe you've even felt that way here. These kinds of exclusions can cause us to feel like we don't belong here on this earth or that we are somehow less than others, less than the dominant culture. These ideas seek to separate us from ourselves, from our divine and holy spark, from others, and from the world. Left unchecked, this can lead to severe depression, anxiety, self-harming behaviors, isolation, self-medication with substances, food, or other numbing behaviors, like maybe too much TV social media or other behaviors that cause a further withdrawal from life. Understanding the source of our separateness, our disconnection from ourselves, the world and what is holy can help us to reconnect. Bre-lugare, the root word of religion means to bind together. When we come together on Sunday, we are choosing to bind ourselves together as a community, to bind our wounds, to bind our hearts and strengthen them. Our Unitarian Universalist religion can help us to remember, to put ourselves back together, even when our sanctuary is shattered. And it can call us back to ourselves even when we shatter someone else's sanctuary. We can come back to the knowing that all are born of original blessing, all have inherent worth and dignity, and the people of the world, which may seem to be an excluding force, are also made up of the very same stuff that we are and are fallible, each being called to greater love, each being called to remember that we are made for love, made to spin dynamically as an expression of something wonderful. Malou's struggle to reconcile the parts of herself into a single whole and claim space in a world that wanted to put her into a place of its deciding speaks to me. And I think it can be a metaphor for us all because there are many types of separating oppression, so many boxes created, so many, so many. But not only can we be whole, there is within each and every one of us an untouchable wholeness, something we might not always feel, but we were gifted when we were born, our original blessing. And our Unitarian Universalist religion can bind us back to that original blessed self. I'm a person of color. I'm culturally Latina and Italian. My biological ancestors have gifted me with multiracial DNA that is Middle East Asian, African, and South Asian Indian. I'm a pagan Unitarian Universalist who grew up Christo-pagan, Catholic, and Episcopalian. I talk with my hands. Please don't try to make me stop. My mom can dance the tango like a superstar. I am terrible at it, but love it. I'm vegan, even though Argentina is famous for beef. My abuelita still doesn't understand. But I can make an awesome flan and can crush lasagna. I speak Spanish, Italian, and English, often at the same time. Like Malou, I sometimes wear Converse sneakers and t-shirts. They're among my favorite things. I'm a wife, a daughter, a mom, a minister. I'm not a box. You are not a box. You cannot define me, and I cannot define you. We are each spinning, dynamic beings in relationship to something larger. And no matter what anyone tells us, we are whole. And we are bound together by something mysterious, something made holy by the very essence that is us. We are the original blessing. And when we live from this space, we become a living sanctuary for ourselves and for others. So a few months ago, my nieces and my nephew visited, and we played this card game I've never played before. And when my niece Katie explained it, she said, there are rules for this game. And the only rule I can tell you about is that the object is to get rid of all your cards. I can't tell you what the other rules are. You have to figure them out as you go along. Each time you make a mistake or break a rule, you have to grab another card and add it to your hand. And if you win the game, you get to make up a new rule, but don't have to tell anyone what the rule is. (laughs) Everyone has to figure it out as they play. Can you imagine the disaster I was playing this game? Talk about feeling boxed out, right? It took me several, several rounds to figure out the basic rules and how they applied to me. And once I did, they kept getting changed by players who'd made the rules to suit themselves and didn't tell anyone else what they were, right? Because that's how the game's played, which makes this a great metaphor for living in a world where the people in power who make the rules get to decide the language of the game. All the rules, and then they get to make up new rules that we don't necessarily know about. They keep controlling the game, how we talk about the game, and change it to suit their own needs whenever they feel like it as the tweets move them. They're playing to win, and people across the world, as well as the planet herself, are suffering with each hand that's dealt. What does it mean to live in a dynamic world that may or may not be designed to honor your inherent worth and dignity or that of others on the planet? How do we, with a deep understanding of our personal identities connect to this great cultural game that has a very real, very painful life and death consequence for us, for the globe? How do we seek to help call the the world towards being more just in the midst of this? How do we communicate with our spark of love, the holy within, the spark of love and others among us and out there in the world, to create a world for everyone, a true living sanctuary, when we may not even use the same language as the creators of this life and death real game? I invite you to sit with these questions. DC poet Dan Vera has Cuban ancestry, but he grew up in a largely Mexican-American community in Texas. And his poetry speaks to how he and his family navigated this life. And he really addresses these issues, particularly around language, in his poem, The Tower of Babel. And it goes like this, exegesis of a funny story in which my father asks for change, change being menudo for Cubans. Menudo being tripe soup for Mexicans. It's 1966 in Dallas, Texas, and my father makes his request to the owner of a Mexican restaurant who is delighted to comply and asks just how much menudo he'd like. My father replies, $5 worth. This is 1966, and the owner asks if my father has brought a container to carry home his $5 worth. My father smiles. I'll carry it in my hand. Thinking of the gallons, the owner is not amused and insists on a container. Then the shouting commences, as neither man can be convinced that he is not dealing with a fool. My father keeps going, pointing to his palm. The restaurant owner keeps making the shape of a vessel. And they grow angrier and angrier with each other until finally one of my father's friends rescues him from the exchange, takes him aside, and explains the difference. This month, you've been digging into the theme of sanctuary, applying your individual learning to your work among the congregation, learning from others, reflecting and growing spirits through interaction. This is essential to co-create this beloved community as a sanctuary. But something really big stands in the way of congregations truly being sanctuaries. And I'm not talking about physical sanctuary. At Cedar Lane, we're a physical sanctuary. We have 762 members plus 215 youth and children and 18-person staff and several buildings on site. So we were able to convert a space into a sanctuary. But our partners in the sanctuary movement in the DC metro Virginia area, Many of them do not have the space to house a sanctuary, but they provide vital resources to Cedar Lane with security assistance and all kinds of other needs to help in the event that we receive a family that is seeking asylum or sanctuary. They can provide toiletries and food and all kinds of other necessary things that we could not do alone. But before you can either consider anything like that, I invite you to think about the term white, cis, hetero, patriarchal supremacy culture, or white supremacy culture. Just like in the poem, this phrase can hold different meanings to each of us, and it can be a barrier to creating sanctuary. Because there are an infinite number of understandings of these words and the many identities we have in this community we will view those words differently. So let's just look at two of them. Some may have struggled with those words because they feel that they're being excluded from the community. Because when they hear those words, they think of people who are white supremacists. Some of these people might even be in their families and have intentionally hurt people. But they've marched, petitioned, protested for equal rights or equal marriage and know that they are not that. So when they identify as white and hear those words, they feel excluded, like their white box doesn't matter, simply because it's white. They might lose their sense of sanctuary in the congregation and want everyone to get along so there can be beloved community. For those folks, when they hear white, cis, heteropatriarchal, excuse me, for some of us, when we hear white, cis, heteropatriarchal supremacy culture being preached about, We delight in the work around dismantling systems of oppression so that we can all find sanctuary. We view the dominant culture as a predatory game that began before we were born, one that has privileged the game creators and those who are born into knowing the rules of the game. We're given the tools to create new rules to suit them. We don't hate the players. We seek to dismantle the game. It's hurtful to hear that people who've been privileged in the game feel threatened by our wanting to just have a seat at the table to finally get dealt in. We know there's room for everyone. We're not taking anybody's seat or telling anyone to go away. We want to play together equally. And instead of playing to win, maybe play for the sake of playing and see what we can create, like joy like true beloved community where we're not asked to give up pieces of ourselves to be like someone we're not. We want to play to create a spiritual home, a place that is a living sanctuary for people in need of the saving message of Unitarian Universalism. The sad thing is we're not all in conversation about this. Some of us are fighting upon the altar of our different understandings locked in a battle of $5 of change versus $5 worth of tripe soup. We're battling with whether love is working in our misunderstanding of each other or is absent in this misunderstanding. And maybe we're waiting for a third party, a divine interrupter to bind us together in understanding. In our Unitarian Universalist faith, is that divine interrupter. Our shared theology of hope, love, and original blessing can hold us when our differences seem insurmountable, binding us together so we can rebuild our cracked and broken sanctuary. And our seven principles can help guide us when we aren't quite sure how we're being pulled by our internal relationship to that spinning, dynamic spark of life and love. In situations of misunderstanding, I often hold onto not only the first principle, but the second, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. The third, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. And the fourth, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. How can we use these as a guide to intervene when we disagree with someone? How can they lead us from fighting over the game currently in play to creating a new one with space for everyone. And if we seek to co-create that game, one that is just, the first thing we have to do is commit to staying in the game. Because if we leave, everyone loses. We lose one of the spokes on that spinner. Second, accept that we are approaching the game with different experiences different language, and while all the positions have some validity, we must give a little of ourselves to create something new, accept and encourage each other as we create and play the game, and then check in, both individually and collectively, to see if the game still holds truth and meaning for all of us as we continue to play. The work of building and sustaining a loving sanctuary is rarely easy and rarely done. It's something that's always in process, discovering itself in new ways, and our religious tradition teaches us this. And we affirm this truth when we assert that we draw from many sources, recognizing that there is truth to all. We might say that God, continu- God continues to covenant and re-covenant with humanity. We might say that truth is continuously revealed or that revelation is not sealed. However, we name the dynamism of the great mysterious game, the result is that we must play this game religiously as Unitarian Universalists acting in a way that rises up from our shared faith tradition while continuing to explore the game's rules. Playing religiously can guide us in those circumstances, especially when we're trying to navigate those convoluted rules. But how do we hold to our religion when some people are playing to win for themselves instead of playing to keep on playing with fair rules for all? And what does it mean to do social justice religiously as a Unitarian Universalist? I'm going to share a quick story and wrap this up. At General Assembly a couple of years ago, there was a group, radical Christian group, that really doesn't like Unitarian Universalists. And they came to protest us, specifically targeting our people of color. our LGBTQIA community. Some of our youth put on some angel wings that were gifted to them by the group that protected the pulse shooting victims and survivors during the victims' funerals. And they used these angel wings to create a boundary of love. And then, because it was a hot day, our youth crossed that boundary with hands holding bottles of water that they gave the protesters. Our youth embodied what it means to do social justice work. When a group or a person hates you for who you are without engaging in equally hateful behavior, they set that healthy boundary. They created a space of sanctuary made with faux feathers, probably a little duct tape, and a whole lot of love. And then they sought to find a commonality, a way to move across our differences and connect on a shared piece of our identity. In this case, it was the human need for water on a hot day. And those offerings of water were filled with liquid hope and the possibility that one day, connected by our humanness, we can be in the game together in a way that generates more love. As you seek to answer deep spiritual questions together, searching for truth and meaning, take heart because you are not alone, and may you become a living sanctuary. Amen and blessed be.